What's up, y'all, and welcome to the Idea Space. I'm Yancey Strickler. Few people living today have as much influence on how the world runs as the author, economist, and professor Mariana Mazzucato. Ever since her first book, The Entrepreneurial State, Mazzucato has carved out a distinct path in economics and public service. It's one of those rare books that completely changes how you see the world. After reading it, you won't look at an iPhone or a prescription drug the same way again. Her second book, The Value of Everything, methodically pokes holes in our assumptions that financial value should be the one form of value for everything. And her brand new book, Mission Economy, explores how to create value and innovation by closely looking at the Apollo moon landing in the 1960s as a case study for what happens when governments set bold, ambitious policies that require widespread collaboration to solve them. Missions like these, she argues, can transform society and produce enormous amounts of spillover value that all of society shares. The Apollo mission ultimately produced the internet, software development, camera phones, tennis shoes, and a dozen plus other key inventions as the unexpected side effects of the larger mission. Today, Mariana is one of the busiest people in the world. In addition to founding and leading the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose in London, Mariana advises everyone from AOC to the mayor of London to the prime ministers of Italy and South Africa on how to reinvigorate government and create value and innovation in their societies. Few people have influenced my thinking as much as Mariana, which is why I'm so excited to welcome her to the idea space to discuss her work, theories of value, and how it feels to push so hard against the grain. The new book is fantastic. Your best book yet. Really? Um, yeah, I really, I really, the way it ties together the past research and lays forward like a plan and, 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 and a plan that feels very much right for the moment. Hmm. You know, it, it really feels like this is the, this is the time for these ideas. And swear to God, I literally pumped my fist in the air after reading the last chapter and the last sentence about like taking the fight and it's just very well done. And, you know, I'm, I'm just very impressed. Oh, yeah. that's so nice. Cause I almost want to cry, <laughs> you know, like with, with Megan Markle, when they asked her, how are you? And she starts like, oh, <laughs> cause actually, you know, I get a lot of hate. I mean, when you're sort of, you know, academics are always supposed to be kind of objective, you know, pros and cons and everything kind of averages out. You're not supposed to really express an opinion. So for a long time, I've actually been calling out, you know, the Pfizer's of the world. <laughs> Pfizer is one of the most financialized companies, by the way, in the world. Um, and so you get the kind of, you know, resistance on that side. But also within, you know, progressives, it's funny, like, you know, when you're kind of just saying things how they are, you open yourself up to quite a bit of attack. And also if you're having influence, you know, if people are actually listening to you, the attack is stronger. If no one's listening to you, who cares what you say? You can say whatever the hell you want, you know? And so recently I've been a bit like, oh, God, not again, in terms of like the, the bogus attack. So thank you for saying you like the book. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that the, you know, my, my opinion, entrepreneurial state and value of everything, you know, both books that heavily influence my thinking, but, you know, the, I feel like mission economy goes, a, goes kind of a step farther and is, is not just you as a policy analyst and economist sort of breaking things down, but you are sort of trying to put things back together again, maybe. Um, and so I, I found that to be 
just a, an ingredient maybe I didn't know I was looking for in, in the previous books. Um, but the, especially towards the end, the last few chapters, I thought it was, it was great, just the things you lay out. But, you know, I, I think of you, uh, and I think it's fair to say, as one of the most influential people in the world. Um, you're named to this UN High-Level Advisors Board on Economic and Social Affairs. You're the co-chair of this World Health Organization Board of All Women uh, that's looking well, we at... we haven't told anyone that yet, but good. I'm glad you... I heard you yeah. mention that to Kara Swisher the other day. Yeah, exactly. And I told her that, too. Like, you're the only one who knows. <laughs> you, you're just, just me and Kara. Uh, you're advising uh, heads of state and national and local governments. And, you know, the Pope got indie cred for name-dropping you in his book. Um, so why are the most powerful people in the world coming to you? And, and how closely does the message and mission economy track with the kinds of conversations you're having? Mm, maybe I'll start with the second one, which is the reason I wrote the book was I was feeling there was, you know, a real thirst already for the kind of last 10 years that I've been, you know, writing the entrepreneurial state and the book on value around the ideas. But then the how, you know, what does this actually mean for the nitty gritty, you know, procurement design? And the redesign of industrial strategy away from just the list of sectors towards this kind of purpose-driven approach where all sorts of different sectors get involved. That kind of how is the reason I wrote it. But also the hope. It's actually a pretty positive story, isn't it? I mean, especially in a world now with so much polarization at every level um, and distrust, just kind of that hope that actually we can do better. You know, we got, you know, humans on the moon and back again when we treated it as an urgent problem, what if we actually treat as urgent as a security risk even, or social problems, and treat it though also with the same level of boldness, creativity, and inspiration, but also intersectoral investment and innovation that we had when we went to the moon, even though these social problems are so much harder. But anyway, so that kind of hope that we can do better, and it's going to be also fun, potentially, just bringing lots of different voices to the table in terms of that kind of co-creation, co-design side, which is what I was just talking about a couple minutes ago with the London mayor, because we're helping London, uh, but also specifically Camden Council, which is a part of London where I work, to kind of nest this idea of a mission, purpose-driven approach in how a council or city, you know, thinks about itself. You know, what does it mean to bring housing associations and different types of citizen groups to the table and actually asking, how do we want to live together? So it's not just kind of a future mobility plan, you know, that you kind of feed in this top-down way. The citizens saying, this is good for you. You, know, you need a green transition. You need a carbon neutral city. But actually, let's talk about it. And, you know, it might be a debate. There might be contestation along the way. But we can actually design, you know, bring, bringing that concept of design also to the table, a better way of living. And it's going to be hard. It means really unpicking all the problems right now in terms of how we come together or when we don't come together or when we don't listen to each other. I don't think civil servants, by the way, are trained in listening, and yet you should be listening, right? If that's why you're there to serve, you know, the public. So empathy 101 classes wouldn't be bad. Um, and I don't mean that they're not empathetic, but literally empathy in the serious notion of the world which, word, which is listening, putting yourself in other people's shoes, understanding, so that social movements, whether it's you know uh, Fridays for the Future, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, these are all movements, just like the trade union movement in the past also in the present, but anyway, that can really shape markets. They can help shape an economy. Uh, but that means allowing them to really be at the table and asking really fundamental questions. Anyway, so, 
so I think there's a thirst. I mean, coming back to your question, sorry, I'm a bit ranting, but you know, there's a thirst for the idea, but the the book was really, as you said, almost like a recipe book, like, okay, let's unpick what this is going to mean for how we confront, for example, the SDGs. So it's not just this kind of tokenistic fluffy. And, and the thirst is for like, tell us how to re- revitalize our state, tell us, you know, help us feel passion, connect us to a purpose. Like what, what, what is that thirst for? The thirst is to put yourself in the driver's seat, like, you know, just feeling miserable when at best you're a cheerleader. Um, I, I, I used to joke that I would walk into meetings with, you know, civil servants as an economist and I'd walk out as a life coach <laughs> because this idea that actually the point of policy is not just about fixing markets, but actively co-creating and co-shaping and you can be purpose and mission driven. That requires taking risks, being an investor first resort, not a lender of last resort, not de-risking, but again, sharing risks and rewards, all that is a new narrative. It's a new story. And it's quite invigorating, isn't it? It's like, oh, okay, fine. I'm not here just to, you know, uh, uh, facilitate Elon Musk (laughs) so he can do great things. Actually, we need entrepreneurialism within the civil service, but also capabilities, capacity. And and what's so interesting about the COVID period, if, if one can use the word interesting with such a tragic situation, but what's interesting is there's been such different experience globally and how countries have handled it. Um, and some of the countries even, you know, that are in the developing world that have done quite well are ones like Vietnam or Kerala and India that have actually been making over the last decade serious investments within public administration. You know, so in order to be a good partner with business, right, because it's never about just the state or just business, it's always going to be a partnership. But whereas we have, you know, business schools talking and thinking with business about how to create value. We don't use, you know, value creation, wealth creation, wealth creators in the context of the civil service and the public service and the state. So I think there's a thirst for that after being kind of depressed with the opposite narrative. I actually opened up the entrepreneurial state back in 2013, the book with a quote by David Cameron, who said, civil servants are the enemies of enterprise. Like, well, that's come back to bite, <laughs> um, you know, because the way to really dismantle the state is not so much necessarily to defund it because money comes and goes. You can increase a budget, you know, but to really kind of demolish its sense of confidence and the kind of organizational structure. And I think that's what's actually happened over the last half century. So in, in entrepreneurial state, you showed how much of Silicon Valley began through publicly funded research. Um, you demonstrate every part of the iPhone originated in that kind of way. The same is true of a lot of pharmaceuticals and that goods were created through public research and they're now sold to us on the private market. So that was published about a decade ago. And you know, the first time I read it, I, I was shocked. The idea that not only did the iPhone kind of originate through public research projects, but that Apple had gotten a loan, uh, a federal loan early on in their life you know, this was like completely unknown to me. And, and I was someone that was working in tech and that changed how I saw the role of the state. Um, so what, what led you to write Entrepreneurial State? How did that start? Um, so that began, I actually wrote it. It's, it's, it's very odd, actually, what I did. I wrote it as a pamphlet first in 2011. I teamed up with Demos, a think tank here in London and the agreement was that, because um, normally they have to find funding for things. I was like, no, no, I need to write this urgently. 
Um, so I said, I'll fund it through some overheads that I had for a big grant that I had received. I said, all I want you to do is just post it, like literally get an envelope. Well, first of all, print it. So they you know, handled most of the printing um, and then post it to every policymaker that you know in the world. <laughs> um, and, and it was free on the web, right? It was you know, literally open source. It still is, which is not a good idea to write a book to have a different version of it completely free. But the book version is a much more expanded version, which I ended up later writing in 2013. But the reason I wrote that 2011 version, really in a rush, it was quite tragic because my mother also died during the period I was reading. So it was really, really actually hard to write. Um, but I wrote it in a rush because I felt that what Britain, but much of Europe was experiencing, in some ways less so in the U.S., was all this austerity after the financial crisis to reduce public budgets, you know, very much, again, what is being talked about now because we've put in all this money because of COVID relief and, you know, there's all this talk about, oh, we're going to have to tighten the belt later. Um, so, you know, that happened with the financial crisis. A lot of relief came in right away and then immediately, oh, we got to cut the deficit, debt. But the narrative wasn't just, you know, we need to pay back all this money that we spent. It was this is going to be good for innovation. It's good for competitiveness, you know, especially in Europe where they were asking the age old question, why does the U.S. have Google, uh, you know, and Amazon and Apple and we don't. And their answer was always, oh, they have venture capital. <laughs> um, you know, we have great science at Oxford and Cambridge. We just don't have enough venture capital. I was like, all right, let's unpick this a bit. <laughs> you're cutting the public budget in the name of innovation, saying you're going to do that in order to be competitive to have the Googles. Well, guess what? You know, guess who funded Google's algorithm? <laughs> Uncle Sam. <laughs> you know, guess who funded Tesla's early investments? Uncle Sam. Guess who funded everything that makes our smart products smart and not stupid? Internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri, and so on. You know, the taxpayer. So, um, and it wasn't just to say, oh, look, the state is great. It funds all this stuff. It was, you know, just step back. And if we really want to have that innovation-led, you know, uh, uh, growth that so many countries starve for, you need to better understand where innovation comes from. And of course, it is critical to talk about the private sector, but we know that. You know, that story is out there. I don't have to tell that story. But the role of the public sector at best is talked about as, again, fixing markets or, you know, people like Bill Gates, unlike Peter Thiel, who goes on on the opposite story. But Bill Gates sensibly says things like we need, you know, more public research, publicly funded research, because, you know, he admits that he and Steve Jobs and others completely depended on that. That's true. But it wasn't even just, you know, uh, basic research. It was also applied research. You know, the ARPA, DARPA models a lot about the applied side. It's also about patient, long-term strategic finance. You know, countries like Israel have had public venture capital funds like Yasma that provided patient, not impatient capital. So yes, venture capital is important, but often the VC sector has or is exit driven. You know, they want to exit quickly, uh, relatively quickly in terms of the long, you know, lags that... Uh, innovation has through an IPO or, um, or a buyout. And that rush to exit has actually caused a lot of damage in some sectors like biotechnology, where um, I've written about this with Bill Azonic, where we've ended up with lots of plepos, productless IPOs, because of that rush. So science-based sectors need time, right? So that patient long-term finance has often come from the public sector through also programs like the SBIR program in the United States, that basically is public finance through procurement. So every department needs about 3% of its budget, um, you know, whether it's Department of, um, of Health, Environment, uh, uh, Defense, to go to SMEs 
not because they're SMEs, but because they're procuring in innovative solutions for that department. Anyway, and also, you know, even further downstream, bold demand side policies. So my colleague Carlota Perez argues, for example, that um, without suburbanization, the mass production revolution, which was a huge kind of technological and organizational revolution, wouldn't have had, you know, its effect in the economy in terms of productivity increases, you know, changes in production and distribution, because it, you know, all these mass-produced products were then, you know, going out to the suburbs to, um, you know, uh, dishwashers, uh, washing machines, cars, and so on, and that helped to deploy and fully diffuse that. So that's also a lesson today. What are the demand side bold policies that we could have, for example, around a greener economy on the demand side that can really act as a funnel for that pull, even for the ICT revolution? Anyway, so the book, I wrote it both to kind of tell that innovation story, which I still think is just not known enough, but also to combat what at the time was really foolish austerity, which simply got countries into even worse of a mess. You know, forgetting Keynes's whole point that when you're experiencing a crisis, the last thing you want to do when your government is to do the same thing that consumers and businesses are doing, which is to you know, spend and invest less, because otherwise, you know, a recession will turn into a depression. And also it caused huge, you know, uh, uncertainty. It caused, sorry, in, in people's lives, inequality. The kind of knife crime epidemic that we're witnessing right now in London is very much on the back of a, a, a very long, um, you know, uh, austerity period we've had here where youth centers have been cut, mental health support has been cut, the police have been cut. Um, that's just brought misery in the name of innovation. As, as you were as you were writing or putting that out, um, first the pamphlet and the book, were you were you anxious? Were you nervous? Did you feel like you are, you know, you're you're coming in with the opposite message that everyone's saying? Did you did you feel did you feel confident doing that or did you feel un- uncertain? Um, I, th- yeah, I mean, that's just not a feature of my, I mean, I, I'm sure I have lots of faults. Um, and I, my kids will tell you many, <laughs> but it, insecurity and, you know, uh, and lack of confidence isn't one of them. Not because I think I'm, you know, arrogant or something, but I just, just don't think about it. I just don't think of what other people are going to think about it. I just think this is going to be important and it is important. And it's important also to realize you're not alone. You need to work with others in order to get the message across, which includes, by the way, good media, like now yourself with a good podcast series, but, you know, being also willing to go on the media. um, That maybe sometimes at the beginning brought me nervousness because I wasn't used to that. But, you know, going on the news at 1030 at night, which is one of the best talk shows here is or news shows, which is called BBC Newsnight. Yeah, you know, it's, it's great and thrilling in the beginning, but it's also extremely tiring. I'd rather be at home putting my kids to bed or just getting a good night's sleep. Um, but that, I think I felt it more like a fight, like kind of guerrilla warfare. <laughs> so you kind of build up your, your adrenaline to do it, you know, so even though it, it might be easier just to do, you know, research and in the end to say, oh, and here's the policy implications of my research, kind of the typical academic way, which is what I used to do being kind of on the front line, repeating your message also. My dad used to say, you're, you're always saying the same thing. <laughs> like, yeah, but it's to different people, dad, it's okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, saying it to different types of policymakers, different levels of government, you know, again, local, city, regional, national, international. And also having the, um, the patience also with the team that I've been building in my new institute to then work with policymakers. I think that's, maybe also where a lot of the 
both adrenaline but also happiness comes from because when you're working with people and getting your hands dirty it's always going to be actually quite enriching because you know in in general people are are nice i think especially those who go into the public service and instead of just saying hey don't do austerity invest you know interest rates are low you know well that's not enough how are you going to do it so working with policymakers building a new public bank in scotland or redesigning industrial strategy to again be problem focused not sector specific um, redesigning innovation policy with the european commission but also now working at that city level with different mayors that's you know quite thrilling but it also needs to be coming back to that concept of empathy you need to be listening as much as you're talking right so in the institute called the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose that I've set up here in London as part of University College London, we call it practice-based theorizing. So you might have a great theory of, of something, like, you know, we need more patient long-term finance, public banks, or wealth funds, fine, great idea. <laughs> then you go on the ground and start working on it, whether it's with the state of California, or if it's, you know, rethinking uh, public banks in South Africa, and so on, and you realize, actually, this is much, much harder than we thought. And bringing back that experience, the learning on the ground to the theory and back again, that kind of feedback between theory and practice is, is important. And I unfortunately don't think that's how universities work. I don't think that's how academics work. And I really think part of our job is to also rethink the university, <laughs> rethink what it means to be an academic um, in order to really engage in that kind of ground level way, as well as, you know, big ideas, of course, we need to blue sky thinking, but then bring it to the ground, learn from it and bring it back to the theory. Matt, you know, the, the new book, Mission Economy is all about missions. Um, and I really appreciate how you talk about how uh, sort of attention of the mission is that they will often be top down, you know, the, the PM, the, the, the CEO, whoever dictates, here's, here's what it's going to be. And people are just expected to follow. Um, and, you know, what you talk about is, you know, we're in a different era where there is actual dialogue and where there, there is the potential for engagement. And you highlighted a couple interesting ways that um, in the EU that, that sort of citizens are being queried more, that there's more of a conversation, more of a dialogue. Um, what, what, what is that space that's happening? Sure. I mean, first, what I mean by missions, and I think this is just important for kind of definitions because people might mean different things. What I mean by a mission-oriented approach is one, that again is, is kind of bold and inspirational, but really does also get lots of different actors together. And, and the reason I say that is it's not about like one big project, <laughs> you know, big offshore wind plant, that's the mission. No, you know, the mission is kind of a proper green transition with a very, you know, particular target around it, whether it's having a carbon neutral city by say 2030, and then getting all sorts of different sectors from real estate to mobility, food, the social sector, construction, and so on to work together to deliver that. So, you know, missions really in terms of picking the willing, not picking winners and that kind of, you know, uh, old style thinking of, of what it means to have active uh, government policy. And so that question of who decides what the mission is, is really what you're asking, right? Is it just like a minister or an academic like myself going into a country advising saying, oh, you should do that? And I think the answer is no, <laughs> um, especially if we're talking about societal missions like those that are embedded within the 19, uh, 17 Sustainable Development Goals. So I begin with the moon landing because I think there's so many interesting lessons there. But then when I talk about today's social problems from you know, inequality to issues around health and, and climate change, we can't, you know, it's, it's not a cut and paste job uh, in terms of the Apollo project. However, 
I think it's important to first say what we can learn from Apollo before we bring it to be, be this more dynamic, again, citizen-centered uh, focus. And what we can learn from Apollo is how business worked with government in a much more symbiotic way than I think we have today. You know, NASA, first of all, it wasn't just aeronautics. It was lots of different sectors from nutrition, materials, electronics. Of course, the whole software industry, one could argue, came out of that. Um, and but but what fascinated me was how you know the head of procurement in NASA had a, um, a a clause of no excess profits. You know we're not going to turn this into a gambling casino. You know we're going to work together, and you're not going to just you know charge whatever you want <laughs> uh, to NASA. And so they really took care in designing again procurement away from what it had been, which was this cost plus model where costs were being inflated and also quality wasn't very high to a fixed price model of procurement with constant incentives for innovation and quality improvement. Um, so it was kind of retaining costs down, but you got you know bonuses if you want when you did great things. And so that kind of confidence that NASA had in terms of how it was partnering with business um, and the dynamic capabilities that NASA knew that it required in order not to get captured by what they called, in quotes, brochuremanship. I love that. It's kind of like today's PowerPoints. <laughs> you know, fancy, fancy, a private sector person goes into government. Oh, listen to me. I'm really smart. Yeah, here's my PowerPoint. So they called it brochuremanship because they didn't have PowerPoints back then. But that's such an interesting insight. And it's something I've been kind of stressing for a long time with governments, which is you yourself need to be capable in order to partner in an intelligent, you know, strategic way with business. Of course, business knows it's a value creator, so it makes those investments. If you don't, as a government, have agencies that are investing within their own public administration, you're not going to do very well and you're going to partner in problematic ways and you will get captured. Anyway, so that's an important lesson. In terms of, again, that who, who, who decides the mission, of course, the Apollo program was quite top down, whereas today's climate change missions, for example, the work we're doing in London is nesting it that within, you know, the, the social housing estates, bringing housing associations to the table, different citizens who are living in social housing, talking together about how do we want to live together, and kind of using that also in terms of that design ex ante of the mission itself. They're not just reacting to it afterwards. Similarly, trade unions, you know, we should remember the labor share of global income is at a record low level. <laughs> There's no uh, problem right now with profits. There's really a problem with investment. I wrote about that with my uh, other book on value and that kind of value extraction, which you also talk about, of course, in your work, Yancy, you know, that that itself has not helped workers because people are not being invested in in terms of, you know, skills and jobs are not actually reappearing when so much value is extracted out, for example, through share buybacks, getting workers voices to the table, not just reacting to, you know, a dysfunctional capitalism, but being part of the planning of a better capitalism means bringing workers' voices to the table to design also the missions, right? So there's this concept of the just transition globally. Well, fine, but, you know, it shouldn't just be about saying these transitions need to be just. What we even mean by a green transition should have different voices. Um, and one of the interesting missions that we've been engaging with in Sweden is one that looks at school meals. Um, because Sweden has this really interesting high-level mission of having a, a fossil-free welfare state, and then it's landing in kind of specific places, including schools. And so having tasty, sustainable, healthy school meals, uh, you know, who's going to design that? Well, who better than having children involved <laughs> in thinking about, you know, also the whole food chain in their curriculum, but also monitoring whether these school meals are good or not very good, you know, good tasting. That's going to be part of that 
process of knowing also when to pivot. DARPA, of course, which is a, you know, a famous organization in the U.S. government for having come up not only with the internet, with lots of things, including, I think, self-driving cars more recently. Um, you know, DARPA's, DARPA's organizational structure is often talked about, but, you know, it's not only good at turning the tap on in terms of what to invest in and innovation, but also when to turn the tap off. You know, when missions aren't working, what do you do? You don't just stick with it because it was someone's great idea. <laughs> you pivot. You have to be flexible and agile. And so, again, all these are about organizational culture. And we don't have agile, flexible, <laughs> dynamic, creative bureaucracies. And we need them if we're going to fight any of the you know, global challenges we currently are facing. So uh, along these lines in, in mission economy, you return several times to the idea of collective value creation. There's one part, quoting one part you write, um, the dominant economic framework rests on the assumption that people maximize their own preferences. Collective effort is missed because only individual decisions matter, with firms maximizing profits and consumers maximizing utility, a proxy for happiness. In this context, the concept of social value is limited to the aggregation of individuals making decisions to maximize their own economic welfare. So what do we miss when we only see value as being created or held at the individual level? Like what, what's the other way to see value creation? So that, that's actually the key kind of point that I made in the book, The Value of Everything, where um, I unpicked different value theories and argued that today's value theory that's taught in every economics class globally, kind of econ 101, first of all, we only look at business really as a value creator, but also value is basically an outcome of how all these different individuals are making their decisions. They're maximizing their individual kind of preference, right? So again, workers maximizing choices of leisure versus work, consumers, utility, and so on. Um, and then we aggregate those behaviors and draw, you know, our fancy supply and demand curves, which even people who haven't taken an economics class will know what that looks. It's an X and in the middle, there's an equilibrium price. And in economics, we learn that these equilibrium prices also then reveal value, right? So they actually reverse just like with the flick of the wand or whatever the expression is, uh, a, a, a century or so of economic thinking, which had done the opposite. So the classical economists, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, began with fundamental questions of what is value, who's producing value. So both uh, Smith and Marx talked a lot about, for example, the problems with landlords at the time who were extracting value out of the system, similarly to today, how Many people might argue that hedge funds and, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, private equity industry and financial sector is kind of extracting value, not necessarily creating it. Um, I know that's kind of a, a broad brush comment. We can maybe go back to that. But anyway, they were interested, like they had an objective theory of value, not a subjective one. Subjective meaning everyone's just doing their own kind of individual preferences. They had an objective one, not in the sense that it was deterministic, but in the sense they actually looked at production. Who's doing what? You know, and who's earning what from that? Um, and so, you know, that's also why Adam Smith really cared about things like productivity. He was looking at the pin factory at the time and looked at how much more productive pin, pin making could be if there was a, a greater division of labor, you know, in production and looking at that organizational and technological change, which he thought was fundamental to increasing growth and the wealth of nations, the title of his great book. Um, when you move to a completely subjective theory, you end up 
being much less capable to even distinguish things like profits from rents, right? So profits, one could argue, uh, in terms of how the classicals were looking at it, can be seen as an income derived from capital of creating sort of a new good and service. Uh, rent is just moving around existing kind of assets and charging people for it, you know, like a troll under a bridge, you know, pay me to be able to cross the bridge. So all the fees, the immense fees and the you know, financial intermediation kind of sector could be seen as rent. And yet simply because there's a price being charged for something, we then include that in GDP and call it something like, oh, that's a service for financial intermediation or a service for risk-taking, if we look at the investment banks. Anyway, so when we completely get confused between value and prices and value extraction and value creation are the same thing, as long as they both have a fee or price attached to it, because that's all we're looking at, prices, and getting them confused with value, then we get ourselves in a huge mess. And by the way, Mark Carney read my book and his reflectors, his first one at least is, is, is quite, uh, was, you know, I mean, he, he said this um, in his first reef lecture, he talked about that, and he brought to it also his amazing experience then as heading up the Bank of England. Um, you know, the lessons also he learned in terms of it's very hard to redesign or re-steer a financial system in, when we're confusing, <laughs> uh, you know, what's valuable. Um, and, but also the public sector itself as creating value but also being a value, yeah, well, being a value creator, that's really hard to do when we don't know how to measure the outcome, say, of a well-designed public health service. You know, in the United Kingdom where I live, I've been here 20 years, we don't pay a penny, by the way, for health, a penny, as long as you're a, a citizen here, um, um, also regardless of whether you're working or not. Um, you get access to a very good public health system. We know how to value the costs of that, cost of nurses, cost of doctors, cost of the hospital. That goes into GDP. We still haven't managed to, to include into GDP the value that's actually created on whether, you know, like all the good stuff that comes about from having a well-functioning public education system, public health system, when it's free. And if you think about how we determine productivity, output per input, if we only know the price of the input, not the price of the output, it's going to be also hard to even talk about things like productivity of the health service. Um, and there's all sorts of ways people try to get around that. Whereas you have Lloyd Blankfein, you know, uh, the head of Goldman Sachs, one year after the financial crisis, saying without trying to make people laugh, he was serious, saying that Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. And you could laugh, but he's right. In terms of how we measure value, yeah, they're earning a hell of a lot of money. And if we're confusing incomes, <laughs> prices, and and value, of course, they're most productive in the world. Um, so if we want to re-steer our economy to be more inclusive, sustainable, less financialized, more investment-driven, et cetera, it has to go down also to, to first principles of this sort. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is the core idea of The Value of Everything, which is a, a, a fantastic book, and about this confusion of price and value. And I'm curious about your instincts for addressing this. Like, Seems like there's one project um, I see a lot in the environmental movement of like uh, not in the environmental movement, but in areas of climate of let's put prices on everything. Like let's let's convert forests to dollars so that we you know we we can account for the whole world. It all goes on the ledger. You know, there's maybe another potential response which is creating new forms of value that price must compete with or that add to how we think about price. Uh, how do you think about you know? trying to square this circle of this gap between price and value. 
Um, so it sort of depends at, at what level of analysis. So there's sort of a micro, a meso, and a macro kind of level, right? So there's been lots of discussion how at the macro level we need, for example, alternative measures to GDP, precisely because of the reasons I was mentioning. If we only include things with prices, then um, you know, when you marry your babysitter, GDP will go down. Uh, when we pollute, GDP will go up. <laughs> Right. I'm in, I'm sort of joking, but not really. Confusing again, price with value, all these weird things happen, which feminists have been talking about for a long time. You know, feminist economists have been talking for a long time, as well as environmental economists with those two examples are perfect ones. I mean, care, you know, now that we're calling all these, you know, frontline workers, care workers, essential workers, and yet we're using the word essential and still don't know how to value them. It, it's it's a real insult. Right. You know, instead of clapping, uh, you know, healthcare workers, we should at least, you know, not only value them, but also pay them properly for that value. The problem is, though, if, if we focus too much on the price bit, you also get into policies which at best try to correct for those price dysfunctions. So, for example, you might have people argue that we need, um, you know, carbon taxes, which, you know, make companies basically actually cost um, the pollution that they're creating, as important as that is, the over-focus, say, on incentives, thinking that you can correct the system just getting the prices right, creates another dysfunction that we forget that broader point that I was making before with the entrepreneurial state idea, which is actually there's a huge kind of portfolio of different policies we need, of which one surely should be, let's make sure we actually get the prices right. But that's definitely not going to be enough. We would have never gotten the internet revolution, the nanotech revolution, the green revolution, the whole space tech revolution, had it just been about, you know, incentives and getting the prices right. It, it required vision, a mission, and so on. So, um, but also, you know, there's lots of discussions also within companies. I mean, that's sort of at that micro level, how companies behave and this idea that we also need different types of corporate governance away from just focusing on another type of price, which is share price, towards a broader notion of stakeholder value. So the business roundtable, you know, wrote that letter two years ago in the New York Times about it. Larry Fink, the year before, from BlackRock, saying, oh, we've you know, kind of screwed up. We need to be maximizing this broader notion of value. And then nothing changes. <laughs> um, the problem there is that if we try to change things just within one of the actors in the system, why? Because we continue to pretend they're the only value creators. Most of the people that talk about stakeholder value in the same sentence will say, business creates value. Business is the val is is you know the wealth creator. We need to make sure that value is shared more broadly. It was like, no, 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 hold on, back up. Wrong. You know, business is one of the key value creators, of course, but so are these other actors in the system. Again, that was the kind of point of the entrepreneurial state. So how do we share that value in this kind of pre-distribution way, in that ex-ante way, through the initial recognition that we're actually collectively creating value? Um, that is what, by the way, changes that confidence level we talked about before, but it also would um, you know, create a different relationship, for example, between the public sector and the private sector in terms also of how they negotiate. Coming back to that NASA example of no excess profits, well, why? Not because it's unfair, but because actually, you know, you're not the only one there, right? Boeing or Motorola or Honeywell, these companies that helped NASA get to the moon, they were part of this wider kind of social ecosystem. And, and that recognition of collective value creation needs to be nested then within the contracts, the relationships. Stakeholder value has to be at the center of the system, not just a corporate governance kind of you know, discussion. 
and these are all parts of the answer to your question, right? It's not, it, you're not going to fix the system just getting the prices right. We need a host of all sorts of different types of policies, but also different relationships that recognize value as being collectively created. Over the last 10 years, a lot of the economic conversation on the left has focused on redistribution. But you, you mentioned something very different there, which is pre-distribution. Can you talk about what that is? Yeah, I mean, pre-distribution is, um, is, first of all, it's been used by different people. And I think that the way I've tried to use it is that it's doing the obvious, which is, you know, making, well, sorry, let me just back up a bit. Pre-distribution, let me just first define it, is the argument that in order to really tackle inequality, you can't just pick up the mess afterwards through redistributive policies, for example, through progressive taxation policies. Regressive taxation policy redistributes income from the poor to the rich. Uh, uh, progressive uh, distributes it from the rich to the poor. Broadly speaking, we can you know, go into exactly how that's done and why certain policies like uh, VAT, VAT, uh, if, when you increase that, that's regressive because it's penalizing people with lower incomes um, more than people with high incomes and so on. So we need progressive taxation, but it's going to be really hard to get to fight inequality if you're always just doing it through tax, because that assumes that you allow you know, things to operate as they do, and then you fix it afterwards. Pre-distribution, the, the pre-bit means before, right? It means ex-ante, not ex-post. And that means that we need to get the relationships right in the first place, right? So both relationships like the public-private relationships in terms of how they are sharing the rewards, you know, with that no excess profits clause that NASA had, but also with potentially equity stakes of governments in the kind of companies that they fund, you know, Government in the U.S. funded both Tesla and Solyndra, almost the same amount of money. You know, uh, it had to bail out the the Solyndra loss, but didn't get any of the upside from the Tesla investment, which of course was high risk. For every successful Tesla investment, you will have six or seven Solyndras. Talk to any VC venture capitalist; they'll tell you that. But what Obama did was the opposite of a pre-distribution strategy. He said to uh, Tesla, if you don't pay back the loan, and why wouldn't they pay back the loan? Because something goes wrong. We get 3 million shares in your company. <laughs> um, had he said, we get 3 million shares in your company, if you do pay back the loan, because it means you're successful and you will owe some of you know, your gratitude to those that made it happen, the price per share between 2009 when they got it, 2013 when they paid it back, went from 9 to 90. That difference multiplied by 3 million would have more than paid back the Solyndra loss and the next round of investment, right? So that kind of public venture capital investor first resort attitude would determine in a pre-distribution way how you think about not just the public investment, but also the sharing of the rewards. So you don't just have to redistribute afterwards, but also making sure that people are paid properly, you know, the living wage. It's not rocket science. It's crazy that some of the richest companies in the world still don't do that. That's obviously a type of pre-distributive a policy, but also I think governing, you know, the innovation system itself, which again is massively a collective, uh, you know, value creation enterprise in a way that really is governed for the public good and the common good itself is pre-distributed. So pre-distributive. So making sure that you're not allowing patents to be abused, right? Uh, William Baumol, the late uh, economist used to talk about patents as causing unproductive entrepreneurship not because patents in and of themselves are, are bad, but we've allowed them to be you know, used just for rent-seeking. So they're often too wide, used for strategic reasons, too, too strong, so hard to license, too upstream, 
you know, they used to be much more downstream what was allowed to be patented. Now it's very upstream. So the tools for research are being patented. All that just creates a lot of value extraction and the health sector is the worst. So today, for example, with the vaccine, making sure that it's not just a public-private investment program, which of course it has been hugely successful, but unless we govern the intellectual property rights to really nurture the collective intelligence we now need, so as much of the vaccine knowledge is shared, but also making sure we don't allow you know, the, the dosages to be completely hoarded by certain countries, um, and making sure that we have things like a patent pool, which is what the World Health Organization has been arguing for, all of these things that I just mentioned could be parts of a pre-distributive kind of lens, which is get the governance of that collective value creation really to reflect, um, you know, public value and, you know, make sure you're not getting kind of conned along the way. That means you'll have less inequality afterwards. So if there's like some basic, you know, basic research happening now that's being funded through some grant and um, say it goes on to produce a, a new web platform or a new pharmaceutical drug, you know, 10, 15 years from now. How would you argue for that being structured differently than we've thought about those things in the past? Or is it just that we should be aware that these investments we're making are creating value? And, you know, is it about realizing a financial return or is it about like just realizing the value of this in general so that we're not starving uh, ourselves of this investment? So I think it requires different things. Thinking of it just as a financial return then brings us back to the initial problem, which is we become very short-sighted and just think about, you know, what's the money that's going to be created, the, the economic value. Um, you know, thinking about that too much ex-ante doesn't get us those kind of moonshots, right? I mean, had we had a cost-benefit analysis or net present value calculation of the Apollo program, it would have never begun, <laughs> right? Um, and this actually... Re- Remind me, please, to, to mention something about the World Health Organization Council we're running, because that health for all mission is, is really important in terms of how we think of the economics of it. But anyway, if we just think of it in terms of financial return, I think then it's a very narrow way to think about this bigger issue, which is really sharing both risks and rewards. There can definitely be measures which have to do with the financial return, like the example I just mentioned with equity stakes, that is a financial return. But the broader point of how do we govern the system for you know, a concept like the public good and the common good, that means paying attention to lots of different details like governing the intellectual property rights or having conditionality. Conditionality that the profits that are outcomes of this collective value creation actually then get reinvested back into the system as opposed to extracted out through practices like share buybacks itself could be the way that you, you know, govern the system to, to get a public return for the public investment. Um, and by the way, I often remind my uh, colleagues that Bell Labs, you know, which everyone knows about, hopefully, in the U.S., having been one of the most uh, uh, dynamic private sector R&D agencies inside at the time, AT&T, came about because the government at the time basically forced AT&T, um, you know, that in order to retain its monopoly profits and its monopoly status at the time, because it was a, a telecoms monopoly, they had to reinvest their profits back into the real economy, back into innovation and big innovation beyond telecoms. Bell Labs was the answer. So, you know, also the, the conditionality we're seeing now for the first time after many years with, with COVID, where in some countries the COVID recovery funds are conditional on companies transforming themselves. So in France, the, uh, the uh, recovery funds that went to both automotives and um, aerospace were conditional on those companies in those sectors 
committing to reducing their carbon emissions, or an Austrian-Denmark company is having to commit to not using tax havens in order to access the recovery funds, and so on. You know, those conditionalities are part of the way to make sure that companies that are benefiting from public subsidies, investments, guarantees are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Coming to your, you know, concrete question, you could argue, you know, because we would have to have very detailed policies. It's not just cut and paste across all sorts of different um, instruments. But with grants, for example, coming back to Google's algorithm funded by the NSF, you could think that maybe... I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. And unfortunately for this, we'll need (laughs) lawyers to figure this one out. But you could put into the contract, here's some money, you know, Sarah J. Brin or whoever. It's yours. It's a grant. If if it fails, don't worry. That's why we're funding you. We want to stimulate innovation, experimentation, and so on. But a clause, if (laughs) this algorithm ends up, you know, allowing you in a company built on, you know, the patent from this to make, you know, X billion in a certain amount of years or whatever, well, a percentage of those profits will go back into a public innovation fund. Why not? I don't know. And I'm just kind of, you know, putting this out there. Surely it can be framed in a more intelligent way. We can think, but why not? Um, and again, the the guaranteed loans going to companies, which is different from basic R&D, which is a grant, but the guaranteed loans like the Tesla ones, and the cylinder ones, no reason why, you know, because these are downstream investments, not the upstream ones where you hope that, you know, there's also just lots of knowledge spillovers. The downstream ones that are going to particular companies to do particular things, again, that's where you might introduce the notion of equity stakes. But the, you know, this assumption that the government, by putting in money in R&D, is going to create this great public good, it's simply not true. If you're then not governing that process, for example, governing the intellectual property rights in a particular way, because a patent is a contract, right? The government gives a company 20 years of monopoly power. So what does the government get back? Well, it gets back what it didn't have in the Middle Ages, where it was all just secrecy. In other words, when the patent is up, because it's been written down, literally, that's what a patent does. It writes down the kind of secret then, you know, the patent is no longer there after 20 years. So there's more diffusion and knowledge spillovers in the economy. But if in the meantime, the patents have been allowed to be abused, they become part of the problem. The government doesn't get back its return in that deal because it's a contract. I don't like the word intellectual property rights. It makes it sound like it's a God-given right. No, it's a contract, you know, and there's one party and another one and and there's a deal. How do you make that deal a good deal and a symbiotic deal and not a parasitic one? Well, you better make sure that the patent doesn't then get abused because then you won't have diffusion because you've allowed all the research to get privatized. Mm. One, one thing I really appreciated in the book um, is, you know, I see you see a lot of people expressing pessimism about pessimism about the future. And, you know, these kids are so narcissistic and there's all this individualism, et cetera, et cetera. And. You know, and you, you sound uh, more optimistic and, you, you know, whereas voter participation rates in the U.S. were declining in the past, they're up now and there's increased civic engagement. There's protest movements like the ones that you've mentioned. And it just you can feel it. There's a different kind of spirit out there even before COVID. Um, do you think that there's something we're moving into something after like classic 20th century individualism? You know, is something happening because of the network? If you're if you think about, say, talking to AOC versus an older politician, or even thinking about your kids, like, is there is there some change in how we are relating? Well, um, I think so. I mean, I have four kids, and they're so much more aware than I was at their age about all sorts of issues um, around inequality, race, uh, you know, if, if 
the whole question of tolerance, you know, more tolerant society, they're very aware of it. I sometimes say things that, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say I'm just completely unaware of the things that <laughs> I should be saying, thinking, or doing, and they make me feel quite foolish. So, but that itself isn't enough, right? So that's where you can get kind of condescension, where we can be like, oh, isn't it cute? My teenagers know everything about climate change, you know, and Greta gets patted on the head, um, you know, at Davos or wherever. So in the same way that essential workers, key workers get clapped, you know, on a Thursday, it's, it's actually offensive, <laughs> right? So what does it mean, coming back to this idea, and I don't want to sound like, a, you know, this is all I believe in, this missions idea, but that's why I actually find the missions concept really hopeful and a positive concept, which is what would it mean to actually bring those teenagers that have become really sensitive, for example, to climate change or to, you know, Black Lives Matter to the table when we talk about what needs to be done, right? In that co-design, co-creation way. And it's, you know, I often remind people that the reason actually that teenagers and even more young kids, kind of toddlers, you know, know about one mission, global mission, which is a plastic-free ocean, is not because an academic like myself or a great business leader like yourself or, you know, a great minister talked about it and went into a classroom, but because there was this amazing documentary made by David Attenborough called Blue Planet. And that last episode, you know, the whole series and everything he does is amazing. But that last episode of Blue Planet with all these, you know, baby dolphins choking and dying of plastic in their uh, system, digestive system, that really resonated. So it spoke to them. So there's something about, you know, what does it mean to bring the full power of the creative sector? And by that, I also mean poetry. If we think of the, you know, Biden's inauguration, where that amazing poet just just made everyone just like stop and think, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, this is so powerful. So broadening out what we even mean when we're talking about, you know, inspirational kind of moonshots, so that it's not even just the STEM subjects, you know, science, you know, technology, mass engineering, but also poetry and the humanities and making people just feel again and dream again. And I have an interesting story. I, I actually ran a commission for the UK government around mission-oriented industrial strategy, and I had really great commissioners. And then I invited Brian Eno, a you know, famous uh, music producer, uh, to one of the meetings because he's on my board of the Institute. And at one point, he's like, hold on a second. My God, you know, on the one hand, he said, you guys are, are just you know, incredibly inspirational. You're talking about things that are, you know, fantastically relevant. But he said, but you're sometimes making assumptions, which is, you know, why do you always assume that people want to get from point A to point B quicker? <laughs> what if they just actually want to go slower and experience life and have the time and, and you know, to, to just live in a different way? So a bit of that, you know, one could say, okay, fine, whatever. Actually, people really need to get places quickly and, you know, congested traffic is terrible. But, you know, how we reimagine with musicians, with poets, with the full breadth of the humanities and, and people, you know, just tackling and thinking about these problems differently, that's also part of that co-creation, co-design. It's not just about citizen movements and trade unions, as I was, was talking about before. Academia itself has become a bit too focused on some subjects, and we're also under-financing you know, the humanities, you'll have lots of physics and mathematics and economics departments potentially doing just fine. And then we just think that's because that's good for the economy. And yet, if the inspiration has to come from this broader set of voices, we also need to be asking ourselves, what does that mean for um, you know, opening ourselves or ears to other ways of thinking about the world? So I was talking to the, the journalist David Wallace-Wells yesterday, and I, I 
author of Uninhabitable Earth. And I, I mentioned that I was talking to you and I asked him if he was, would he be interested to hear from you? And he had a great question. He, he was curious about your thoughts on the new dogma of central banks and what it would take for central banks to embrace climate change as a mission. Hmm. So first of all, that's sort of happening. I mean, in Europe, at least, the, the European Central Bank and the European Investment Bank having, are having you know, an increasing number of conversations about you know, climate finance, but also making sure that, especially in a moment like this, like the health pandemic or previously with the financial crisis, we don't just flood the system with liquidity, which is what happened with the financial crisis. Most of that money just went back into the financial sector. It didn't actually resolve the problems on the ground. So this kind of much needed coordination between injection of money and then the actual structures and the real economy that need that money, but also with a direction. So it's not just, you know, stuff in the real economy, but again, in order to foster a green transition. I think those conversations are very much there. The need to have an independent, you know, central bank. Of course, that's always the pushback, which is no, you know, what you need is say directed fiscal policy, fine, but you can't have a central bank directing where the money goes. That's where, but you know, they do direct it in the end. I mean, there's particular, you know, places where this uh, increased liquidity goes and even just making that much more visible, transparent and having metrics that are mandatory you know, for, for different banks and investors to reach as opposed to just, um, you know, the kind of voluntary ESG kinds of uh, 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 metrics. I think that's one of the main ways, which is to get a financial system broadly defined, not just central banks, where finance is being directed towards, you know, areas that truly are sustainable and that we have, you know, standardized, transparent, mandatory metrics in order to capture that sustainability or not sustainability of the system. That itself would go a long way. I think Mark Carney with the Bank of England has been very important for those discussions. So, it, so, so, so it's about, so you're saying the central banks and they're setting a direction. Maybe, maybe they are setting more of a direction than they maybe have in the past. And that, I mean, obviously the climate is in the conversation. If we think about, you know, the, the stimulus 10 years ago in the U.S. was $700 billion and the most controversial thing ever. You know, now we have like, Six trillion in stimulus, I believe, in the past year in the U.S. alone, and there's a small amount of grumbling, but not much. What what is the difference? You know, and I feel like your ideas are being embraced, right? That you felt compelled to write this book, and now that's on the table. Why? What's different now? Why is that happening? And will this last long enough to do the things that we need to do? So, in one of the chapters where I talk about outcomes-based financing. I kind of recall one of the main points of MMT, modern monetary theory, and my you know, friend Stephanie Kelton, who's also on my board, <laughs> is one of the key advocates of that. Um, sometimes I think they exaggerate because they forget to also narrate it in such a way that you know politicians can also talk about it without getting massive amounts of pushback. But the key point is so right, which is when we go to war, no one says, oh, we don't have enough money. Money literally comes out of the woodwork. Right. Has anyone ever said, oh, we can't go to Afghanistan, oh, we can't go to Korea, we can't fight World War II because there's not enough tax revenue? Money is created, right? The problem is that it's also created when you have a financial crisis, when we have COVID and the kind of recovery schemes that we need now, but often that's too late. You actually have to wait for the war to arrive, for climate change to get to the point that it is getting, and it hasn't even gotten to that. Like We're not spending the trillions on climate change yet. We are with the COVID recovery scheme, all of a sudden, you're putting in a lot of money, but it's too late. What does it mean to be creating 
that money in such a way that along the way you are preventing these crises or making our social fabric more resilient, our systems less unequal. Because of course, with COVID, we know that the people who've been affected the most are those also who've been suffering the most in terms of increased inequality, global capitalism. So why don't we create funds to um, you know, solve those problems along the way precisely so then you don't have to put in the trillions all of a sudden overnight, which you know potentially is, I don't want to say a waste of money. I, I believe that we should have even bolder stimulus packages, but it becomes very hard to do it in a strategic structured way if it's kind of, again, you know, too little, too late. <laughs> um, and so I think what we really need is a different idea of where money comes from, what is the real constraint in the, you know, in, in the government's budget. Um, and, you know, the whole fear of inflation, for example, doesn't make any sense if you are operating at under capacity, right? When you have the levels of unemployment we do or underutilized resources or wrongly utilized resources. So a major transformation of those resources, which again, expand the pie because you're transforming the system in a new direction. There's no reason you should have inflation. You have inflation when an economy is stagnant and you're not increasing its potential growth rate, and then you just inject a lot of money, you literally have an existing amount of goods and services with a lot of new money kind of sticking on it, that'll increase inflation. But if you're expanding the pie, you won't. But the problem is, if we're just expanding in this unsustainable way that kills the planet, <laughs> then that's a whole other problem, which inflation is a minor problem if we're you know, all going to be um, you know, no longer on a sustainable planet. So I just think that what the COVID recovery, you know, trillions that are being put into the system remind us is actually when we care and when we realize, uh-oh, we, we, we've got to act now because lives are on the line and jobs, that, then we actually do come in. But unless it's part of a new way of thinking of what government is for, what the constraints are, and what is public finance, then it actually doesn't create a real shift. We're just going to go back to normal later, wait for the next crisis, and again, put in the trillions without having actually changed the underlying structure. So there was a, a great um, tweet triptych of you and Kate Rayworth and Stephanie Kelton holding each other's books. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and the three of you, you know, have pushed the consensus on economics, the purpose of the state, assumptions about money. Um, in huge ways, I'd say Carlota Perez and Elizabeth Anderson are also two people who've, who've changed, changed that. So why are your ideas connecting to this moment? You mean our ideas? The triptych? <laughs> our, yes. By your, I mean all, all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Well, you know, it's funny because Stephanie and I once um, joked around about, you know, how the Financial Times has this magazine that's called How to Spend It. <laughs> we said, well, we should write that. And it'll be like, Stephanie will tell you, you know, how, you know, where money comes from. And Mariana will tell you what, you know, in terms of the missions and the purpose. We're like, we'll, we'll be the editors of that magazine. How and what to spend on. Um, and of course, you know, Kate's work, Kate's work has been really important for also making this notion of the circular economy something um, also very visual, that wonderful donut she has, which is, you know, really about how do we think about the regenerative potential about the economy, but also of humans as needing to regenerate their own, you know, ability to prosper. So I think they're important, these three ideas. <laughs> um and these three different ways and some ways of saying similar things, but with different focuses, because our system is so not going in that direction. We continue, even 
now where we're putting all this money in, we're already hearing about the need to share the burden and to cut, you know, cut public spending later. So the idea of austerity and governments being seen as the same thing as a family household that has to be, be you know, living within its means, all that kind of problematic notion because it's, it's theoretically unfounded, um, which again, we always realize when it's too late, that's still there. Um, this idea that at best we should just be putting a lot of money into infrastructure because interest rates are low, that's still there. Um, and, you know, the idea that actually all the wealth creation is in business and at best we can talk about stakeholder value as a way to feel good because you're sharing your great individually created wealth in a better way, that's still there. There's no proper kind of collective value creation. So to create change, I think we need the battle to be a triptych one <laughs> in that way that you just said. Uh, by the way, that photo came about one evening. I think I was, I don't know, eating ice cream or something with the kids. And Kate sent me and uh, Stephanie uh, a WhatsApp. And we had never been on WhatsApp together saying, hey, guys, I just got a great idea. Can you please go take a picture of yourself with our, you know, with the other two's books? And luckily, we had those books. <laughs> you know, there was this assumption that we'd all have each other's books. We did. And then we all had to have our kids take these photos because it's quite difficult to sit there. So, uh my kids were like, nah, you don't look good. Go back. <laughs> and then it was just like done in 10 minutes. And then it became a great little Twitter, whatever. What are they called? Not meme, something. Twitter, something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, I've never seen guys do that. I've never seen guys. You know what I thought, was, what I liked about that? women supporting women and showing each other's work so we weren't holding our own book but each other's I thought there was something really special there because unfortunately definitely in academia that's not how you know everyone's worried about their own citation index h factor no I, I think that's a great point I, I don't I don't know if three men would have done that you know I don't I don't know if they would I I, I think that's fair I think that's fair if I could squeeze in just one last thing if I have this correct you write about how much money Deloitte and the big consulting firms make from government and the ways the government is outsourced stuff. But it's my understanding that you don't get paid for the work that you do with governments. Is that true? And well, so I, so first of all, I've been criticizing the large consulting companies for um, a process that I've been witnessing, which is the reduction in government's own investment in their capabilities. Right. So that infantilization that Lord Agnew talks about of the public sector, which I think is, again, a really interesting way to put the problem, is what then my advice to governments is focused on. A lot of my work is free. Almost all the advisory councils I'm on are free. So I'm an advisor. I was a special advisor to the Italian prime minister, to the uh, South African president, and uh, to the Scottish uh uh, first minister, that's free. I also, when I bring my institute to the table, we need to fund the work, right? So the postdocs, the PhD students that will be part of a team that over a two-year period will work hand-in-hand hand with the civil servants, we have you know, contracts for very little. They basically cover the costs, say, of a postdoc. So for example, for the two-year work we did in Scotland, the cost charge mainly covered uh, my collaborator, who was a, a research fellow, to do the work. So it's basically at cost. Um, I do, I am on the speaker circuit. I won't, you know, um, I am an academic on an academic salary with an artist husband, four kids and a very expensive, uh, uh, you know, European city. So I do need to uh, make extra money. And I tend to do that more in talking about my work. And, you know, it's nice to be paid to talk about ideas. But that's not that's not really consulting. That's a what is that after dinner talk uh, payments? 
<laughs> but yeah, um, but I actually, yeah, but you know, it's also what you're charging. Um, so if people are charging governments, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Actually, I think I could, you know, it would be, it would be wrong to think that an academic who, you know, is just going to go around doing free work. The problem with consulting companies is the amount that they're charging. It's ex- ex- extraordinary. Um, in terms of the billions often being siphoned out of government budgets. But even there, it would be okay, actually, if that was accompanied by an intra-governmental investment, which over time weaned you off of that need to get the consulting companies to, for example, do project management. So I don't actually blame the consulting companies. I blame governments for becoming addicted to them. There's a big debate happening now in Italy with Mario Draghi, who's brought in McKinsey, to basically project manage the recovery. Now, if that's because in the meantime, the Italian civil service has become decimated, then maybe he has no choice. But if that's a process of increasing the decimation of the Italian civil service, that's the problem. And I Mm. think, unfortunately, that's where we are. Mm. This is over consultification. Um, well, you've, you've been so generous with your time, Mariana. I, I so appreciate it. And, um, and the, the book, the book is great. And, and your, your, you know, your mission is as important as any in the world. And I continue to wish you success. Thank you so much, Yancy. And I hope one day we can collaborate on something together, <laughs> especially in the woods behind you. <laughs> Thanks for the discussion and hope to talk to you.